I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and what a joy it is to be joined today by Kelsey McKinney, who is a freelance features writer and co-founder of Defector Media. She previously worked as a staff writer at Vox, Fusion, and Deadspin. Raised evangelical in North Texas, she now lives in Washington, D.C. with her husband and dog. God Spare the Girls is her first novel. Hi, Kelsey. I love seeing your face. Hi, Maris. Thank you so much for having me. What a joy. I'm so happy Um, to be here. Um, So in your bio, um, you you mentioned that you were raised evangelical in North Texas, which is an interesting biographical note given the subject of your novel. Tell me about writing what you know or, or expanding upon what you know. Yeah, so my book takes place in an evangelical megachurch in North Texas, and it follows two daughters of a celebrity pastor who's caught with a secret. And I, it is fiction. I am not either of these girls. All of these characters are made up. I did not even go to a church like this. Um, But I did grow up in this community, and I grew up in North Texas, very evangelical, surrounded by evangelicals. And I think for me, when I started working on this, it was kind of out of a more cathartic space where I was trying to process my own experiences um, outside of like a publication cycle. I was writing just longhand on like legal pads and I got to the, and then it just kept building until I was writing about people that didn't exist. So I think part of the reason we decided to include that in the bio is not to undermine the fact that it's fiction or to say that like, I needed credibility to write about this, but just to say that like this came from a place of like deep personal questions that mm-hmm. are, I hope are reflected in the book. Absolutely. And I mean, just the epigraph alone just punches you in the face out of like right off the bat. I, I'm going to read it to you, even unless you have it memorized. I do not have it okay. memorized. <laughs> okay. 
So this is um, from Genesis 19.8. It says, look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them, but don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Genesis. What the fuck? Tell tell me about this. Book one, baby. Um, I, so... I've had this epigraph since like very, very early on in working on this project, partly because I wanted to start this story about a question of faith and the fallout of that with a verse that I think for a lot of evangelical Christians is one they've struggled with. Mm -hmm. So this passage, Lot's passage is like very controversial, very much something that pastors love to kind of skip over really quickly and not look at too much in the face. Because if you if when you pull this verse out of context, it's awful, right? It is absolutely terrible. And so to read it and say like, this is in a holy book and this is something that we are being taught as like a moral theory Mm -hmm. um, is scary Mm -hmm. out of context. And so I kind of wanted to place it right at the beginning of the book as a kind of almost a dog whistle for people who grew up evangelical to like wait, let them know exactly what's coming here, right? That like, this is the space you need to be in. One of like low key terror and (laughs) high key questioning. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And yeah, you it it gets right to the heart of the matter um, regarding the misogyny in, in, in the church. And women's roles in general as kind of supporters of the men. Yeah, I think a lot. um, So another epigraph that I love from the Bible is C.E. Morgan's first novel, All the Living, starts with an epigraph from Ecclesiastes. And I remember when I read it, I was like, oh, this is such a beautiful like verse to start with this idea that like there's a time for everything under the sun. And when I was kind of working on mine, I was like, I want to do kind of the opposite of that (laughs) and be like, here's this Bible verse that we are taught as this like part of a beautiful text, but make it dark and bad Mm -hmm. because the book I think is trying to do both of those things. It's trying to say like, this can be a beautiful faith for a lot of people that's very meaningful. And also it can be incredibly hurtful to the people who believe it the most. And so it's a, it's kind of a marriage of those two ideas of a bible verse i guess absolutely and I, and i um feel sorry for discounting that both of the women you follow in this book caroline and abigail get certain things either out of their religion or their faith in god whether that's the same or not um is is up for debate i i i wonder if you were aware of constantly aware of this fact that you don't want to present this faith as all good or all bad. Absolutely. Yeah. So I grew up evangelical, as we've already said, and what was really interesting for me about growing up and growing out of the faith that I grew up in was recognizing that while I had been taught a lot of things that were very harmful to me and like made my adjustment to being an adult more difficult, it had also been a really encouraging and safe space for me for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so that is like a dynamic that is really hard to parse. You know, you're saying like this space hurt me and you're also saying, I loved it. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And so that was something that I, when I started off with the two girls, I wanted them to both have the same foundation, right? They're sisters. They have the same parents. They grew up in the same church and yet their relationship to the church, to this text, to the world around them is very rapidly splintering. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to have these two girls who kind of are consuming the same information and arriving at a different conclusion, which isn't to spoil the end of the book. It's just to say that like they end up in very different spaces with their faith at the end. And that's intentional, right? To say that you can consume all the same things and there's no right answer, right? When it comes to what you believe, there isn't like a truth that's universal. And that's what's hard about it and messy. Boiler. And I kind of wanted to like play in that space. Yeah. <laughs> And and I think that's part of growing up too, right? Like that you learn that there are no (laughs) absolute truths and that you have to figure everything out for yourself and like how how sad and and lonely that is when you first start to understand that. Yeah, it's so easy when you have every moral code just laid out before you and you're like, cool, great. I just follow this book and I don't ask questions about the scary verses I don't like and everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. And that's a really comforting space to be in. It's scary to leave. And it's also, you are so good in this book at at showing just how much of a part religion is a part of these girls' identity. And when your religion is such a fundamental part of your identity, um, it must be much more weighted to... Um, begin to question it. Right. Yeah. I think that's part of what I'm dealing with in the book is, and I went through this process too, as someone who grew up really religious and kind of centered my identity around that religion is that if you start questioning and if certain pieces start to fall, suddenly the whole thing falls down. Right. So we see this in the book with Caroline, that as she She asks a couple of questions and she has sex before marriage and suddenly everything around her is crumbling. And that is terrifying. And I feel like for her and also for me in my process of like trying to decide what I believed as an adult, part of what was so hard about that was separating the kind of indoctrination that you have as a child who grows up in these cultures from what you actually ever believed right? So like I had all of these methods that I used, right? Like praying or using or going to the Bible or talking to a pastor that suddenly were unavailable to me. And how are you supposed to learn to recope with that? And I think that's just part of that's just becoming an adult, but that doesn't make it any easier. No, no. Um, and of course, so Caroline, um, very early on in the book, uh, kind of ditches her promise ring <laughs> and, um, has sex and I love how the sex is fine. <laughs> she sort of, I, 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 she wishes there was blood. Mm-hmm. I think is like, I, cause yes, that's way more dramatic. It's like, that would be life-changing. And this was, this is just sex. Right, I think it's so, you know, 
this it's not just the south but the south in particular has such a heavy abstinence only education and the church in particular has a really heavy abstinence only education and so your knowledge of what sex is is like extre- both extremely vague and extremely wrong and so most of what you've learned is scare tactics right so for most teen girls they think like oh my god i'm going to have sex and then i'm going to be in a puddle of blood right <laughs> and that is like not realistic at all but it's also just not true for a lot of women now right like if you use tampons or play sports the odds of that happening are pretty low and so I wanted to kind of play with that a little bit and say like here her expectation wasn't even that it would be great the first time and that's what she was disappointed about it was that it would be worse like literal like thunderclaps like the world turns dark and And she viewed it as something to get over with right so she her perception was that it wouldn't be fun just get over with it and deal with the pain and move on into being an adult and then you realize like oh this is a very normal thing that everyone in the whole world does (laughs) it's impossible um and then of course immediately after that we, we get the precipitating event that, that really <laughs> makes them, makes the girls question their family and their faith. Um, tell me a little bit about their father. Yeah, so the Caroline and Abigail are the only children, two daughters of a pastor who's named Luke Nolan. And he is this charismatic, I mean, like, over six foot wranglers wearing like pacing pastor kind of of the like celebrity pastor brand you might say um and he is very manipulative and very smart and so a lot of his work as a pastor has been around kind of the awareness of what people outside the church think is going on inside the church and manipulating those beliefs and assumptions into something he can use, right? So like the first, his big sermon that's in like early in the book is a a reimagining of like a purity pledge group. Um, And the way it's done is in a way where he seems self-aware and is like, oh yeah, we know that the world hates this and we know that people think it's bad. But the truths behind his program are the exact same they've always been. And so that's kind of who he functions as as a person in this book, is someone who knows the criticisms of modern Christianity and is still upholding the same system anyway. And and then, of course, it's com- it complicates things more because Abigail um, clearly went such... <laughs> Let's let's use the right words here. <laughs> she has she has a, a, a say in, in what he says. Yeah. And Abigail is like the brilliant, the brilliant firstborn daughter, right? Like she she's good at it. And as the book goes on, it becomes clear that she's just as good as it at it <laughs> as Luke Nolan is. There's just not the same kind of space for her, right? Where she a boy, she would have gone to seminary and she would have her own little startup satellite church. And because she's not, she has to reckon with the, the knowledge that she has this talent and the reality, which is that she has nowhere to put it. And then as a woman, what do you do when you feel (laughs) this calling? Yeah. I, I, I feel so bad for these girls. Like, I know I made them up, but I'm like, this is so (laughs) sad, right? Like you, 
I think especially for Abigail, who's someone whose relationship with her faith is only going to grow stronger, only grows stronger throughout the book, recognizing that the church doesn't appreciate you and maybe never will is a really hard truth to sit in. And I, I feel sympathy for her. That's a, that's terrible. Yeah. And then, and, and even her role models for, for women in the church, there's her mother and then a character called Mrs. Debbie, <laughs> which I love, I love that. You love um, Mrs. Debbie? Yeah. Or the name? Both, both. um because mrs debbie feels like the one behind the scenes making everything happen oh yeah i mean that's the thing about so luke nolan's church is called the hope church and the thing about the hope church the thing about most of these major evangelical churches is that men are standing on stage men are the ones making the like important quote-unquote important theological decisions and the person who's organizing the coat drive and making sure all the donations get counted and cooking dinners for people in the community are women mm-hmm. always and so and the people bringing their families to church are women so the actual heart of your congregation is the women in it you're just not giving them any power which is it's interesting yeah. <laughs> and then of course Ruthie the the mother and wife of Luke Nolan um you you ne- you just you mentioned Tammy Taylor <laughs> once so of course that was stuck in my head throughout the entire book mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah she's very like very much put together very much like smiley big the bigger the hair the closer to god you know the classics mm-hmm. so tell me about the choice kelsey of um, keeping the focus of the novel really tight on the two sisters rather than like, I I can imagine, like, I don't know why. I I was imagining someone saying to you, why don't you do a chapter in this person's voice and in the mother's voice and Mrs. Debbie's voice and uh, you you really keep it focused. We had, I think at some point when we went on submission with the book, there were some editors who thought that that would be a better way to tell this story was to kind of divide it up into the voices of the church. Um, And I'm actually reading uh, The Secret Life of Church Ladies right now, which I think is phenomenal and does a great job of that. Um, So beautifully tells all of these women's voices in these very specific vignettes. Um, But I think one, I don't think that's where my like, firm skill set is. I don't think I'm great at that. Um, And two, I wanted to deal with the actual faith part of it. I think there's, there's a way to tell this story in which it is about the church and the way that people interact in the church and the way that mega churches, um, how do I want to say this, betray the people who believe the most. And I think that would also be a good book. It just wasn't the one I was trying to write. I wanted to write a book about the internal struggles of faith. And the only way to do that is to get as close as possible and as tight as possible. And so like even major characters like Luke Nolan, we don't really hear from, you know, it's like, I think there's only, he only has a few lines in the whole book because he's not really important to the questions we're trying to ask, which are like, how do you stop believing something you've always believed? How do you make a space for yourself in the world? And those are all really personal questions. And then you do get to make an actual space for Abigail and Caroline in the novel. Um, 
in that they have this ranch left to them by their grandmother. And so they can go off um, alone, the two of them to kind of process the news and everything that's, that's happening to them. Tell me about writing about that kind of liminal space. <laughs> it's interesting because, so the book is in like a tight third. And part of the reasoning for that is that I wanted readers to be able to see things that the girls didn't see. Right. So Caroline will make mistakes. And as a reader, you will know their mistakes mm -hmm. and she doesn't know it. Right. And you're close enough to do that. Um, and the ranch is kind of a similar place, right. Where the girls view this as like complete solitude. They are all alone. They can do whatever they want. Right. But you as a reader are like, okay, this ranch is not that far away. It's off a major road and people keep just fucking showing up, right? Like you're really not alone, right? Like you have kind of a visibility that even this separate space can't fully detach you from. Um, and I wanted to kind of play with that idea of growing up in this kind of micro celebrity world where mm -hmm. you don't have privacy ever and where eyes are always on you and where you must behave, right? And so for the girls, the ranch functions as a liminal space and as this kind of area where they can like, quote unquote, be wild, but like they aren't wild at all. They're being very well behaved. They know they could be watched or barged in on at any time. And so it's kind of a, it's kind of a play with that, right? To the, yeah. the idea of isolation and how we perceive it. Also, I just love a good ranch, which is- That's, that's, that's very- That's part good. of it. Like that's I love a group, a big sky. <laughs> The, the other thing that I loved about the sisters and, and what they were attempting to do was I don't have sisters, but I always dreamed of having one, <laughs> you know, and, and be, being like having that person being your best friend. And <laughs> I can imagine that there are even people who have sisters who are like, oh, yeah, what a great fantasy that is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, so I have a younger sister and growing up, we were just like literally at each other's throats constantly. Like we were very different in some ways and in the ways that we were similar, we butted heads. And I think some of that you see in Caroline and Abigail's relationship, right? That they kind of have this um, tension between them that is born of both feeling like they have to be perfect and having different methods for doing that. Right. Um, my sister and I, when we grew up, actually became, we're rather close now, which is very lucky. But I remember as a kid watching movies of like two best friend sisters and being like, is this a joke? Like, how do I convince my terrible younger sister to be nice to me? <laughs> I'm sure she was yeah. saying the same thing. So I have to be best friends with this. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. And, and they, but that's they, the problem with Caroline and Abigail, right? Is that like, they know each other really well. And so when they come out with a dagger, they know exactly where to put it. And like some of the fights in this book, I think are like very, if you did grow up with a sister, are very visceral because you can see that kind of stabbing right between the ribs. Like they know where to go with it. And that's, I like that dynamic where you're so intimate and yet that intimacy is also built on strife. <laughs> they know exactly what buttons to push. I, and mm -hmm. um, even Caroline, um, can recognize um, Abigail's stress responses and trauma responses, like a, a literal, like shaking of the leg. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she sees it, right? And that is like, 
I mean, this is also true in like very long-term relationships, right? Mm -hmm. That like you are so aware of each other that like even in a crowded room, you can be like, oh no, he's panicking. I need to go over there and like help him, even though there's no like real indication that anyone else could see that this is a problem. And I wanted to kind of build in that level of awareness for them with each other so that you could kind of see that like, these are girls that are not only used to managing themselves, but managing everyone around them Mm -hmm. and making sure that like these systems run smoothly, no matter what. And so if your sister is panicking, you need to shut it down for her. You need to find a way to fix it. Right. And that is like something that shouldn't be asked of teenage girls, but often is. And, And then you also do the opposite in that we're in the close third we can see sometimes when Caroline has an impression of, of, of something that's happening in Abigail's life. And it's, it's pretty clear that she's wrong. Yeah. She, I mean, it's so hard to be a teen, you yeah. know, like being 18 <laughs> is just awful. Yes. And I think like one of the things I tried really hard to do with Caroline is make sure that everything she believes seems true to her Mm -hmm. and so even though as a reader there are decisions she makes in the middle of the book that as a reader you're like no please stop please don't do this like no one wants this but to her it makes all the sense in the world right and that is like how teenagers function where they're like I have so many emotions and I must take action with them and you're like okay maybe don't do that (laughs) and and that's another part of becoming a grown-up is is learning like when you can do that and when you shouldn't and like right and that's terrible lessons to learn that's something really interesting about these girls who have this amount of I guess visibility right Mm -hmm. is that like they were never children right like they could never behave the way that teen girls behave they behaved like adults always but you're not an adult Right. right. And so even though they would both say like, oh, we're not, we're very grown up. We have no, none of these like proclivities of other teenagers and young 20 somethings. They do. It's just more measured. They're just, they just are believing that they're not doing those things. But Caroline is very much a teen. <laughs> yeah. And Abigail is 24 mm-hmm. and about to get married, which, you know, in, in my New York City state of mind is like (laughs) very young but of course there's a line about how um for the girls in that community if you make it to 30 and you're unmarried oof yeah it's really weird so I am I'm from this part of Texas right and like everyone I grew up with is married all of them at 30 were married right and that is like absolutely not true here on the East Coast, right? Most of my friends are dating or still deciding what they want to do. There's less kind of pressure. And one of the like tenets of the book is this idea that marriage is something that women need to do, right? And that regardless of whether or not it's a perfect match or you're extremely excited, if you don't get married, the repercussions are worse than being in a bad marriage, right? And it sucks, And I think that it's still true in a lot of parts of this country and that you can follow, um, you know, thousands of young Instagram Christians and you will see the same kind of narratives that are in this book, right? Women who are saying like, my dumb oaf of a husband all the time. And you're like, well, why are you married to him if you think he's a dumb oaf, right? And they're like, marriage is so hard. We fight every day. And you're like, what? What? Like, (laughs) that can't be good for you. But it's, it's a status thing. They need it to kind of be in the community they want to be in. 
And who cares about a secondary relationship with one's husband if your main focus is your relationship with God? Right, exactly. And that is, I mean, that a lot of the characters in this book make decisions that maybe don't make sense in other cultures, even in the United States, right? Like they make decisions based on the belief that if you do not believe the exact same thing as them, you're going to be damned forever, right? And so to them, the stakes have never been higher, right? They're like, we have to make choices to save people. And it's like, okay, but you're ruining your own life. (laughs) But they don't see it that way. Yeah. And even then in terms of Luke's trajectory, mm-hmm. um, there's clear a, a difference. There's a distance between what Luke has to do to find forgiveness in the church and what he needs to do to perhaps find forgiveness from his daughters. Two different things. Right. The structures of the church are such that the church is also a business on top of Mm -hmm. being a faith, right? And the Hope Church is a massive church. It brings in probably millions of dollars a a year, right? And so is it more important to have a pastor who's perfect or a pastor that everyone loves? And the church decides it's more important to have a pastor that everyone loves, right? And that is a terrifying decision and I think that for the girls in this book that's part of the the reckoning that they have to make right that they really believe in this faith and its tenets and they've been brought up with a man who taught them to read the bible like a close reading in a college literature class and so they believe that he needs to follow those rules and when he doesn't they don't really know how to grapple with that because then you have to ask the question of, okay, so is this thing that I believed wrong or is the church that I've spent my whole life in and love wrong? And neither of those are great questions to have to ask. (laughs) Not not great questions. And there's no real, um, the members of the church or the, the um, elders in the church have kind of a playbook to follow Mm because when it happens at other churches, other businesses, you, you kind of um, can do a case study and figure out what works. I did a, I mean, you said at the beginning that I am like a journalist by training and I did a lot of interviews when I was studying, when I was studying to write this book, um, because I think even though you, right, I grew up in this community, I thought I knew a lot. You also have like blind spots that are based on your own youth or your own perceptions or your own ideas of what you want a church like this to be like. And so I talked to a lot of like former clergy, former like that woman's people who have made pastors fall from grace. Um, I talked to several like big leadership crisis PR people. Oh, and what was really fascinating about a lot of that was that I learned that, yeah, these are, it's the same as like a Hollywood notes apology app, right? There is a standard (laughs) for how you respond. And that response is theoretically biblically based and very much proven by trial by fire, right? So they know that, that this set of steps will work. And if you just follow them very carefully, no one will be mad and everyone will forget. 
And that is scary to think about a church with as much power as like any Southern Baptist church has having a playbook like that in their back pocket. It is terrifying to me. Yeah. And there's even like, again, this is, this is probably my ignorance, but I know that counseling is such a big part of Mm -hmm. um, the atonement process. (laughs) Right. It's yeah. Tell me about counseling. Counseling is like a weird. So I like have extremely bad clinical depression and have been in therapy for a long time. So it is not that I like disagree with talking to someone about your feelings. (laughs) No, no, no. This is a different kind of counseling. Yeah. That to me is a good, healthy thing to do. But what's weird about a church like the hope is that if you are considered to have been in some kind of bad situation, right? Be that like you're thinking about getting a divorce or you have an unplanned pregnancy or whatever it is. They're going to ask you to do counseling, which is not therapy. It is not with a licensed therapist. It is with a pastor and it is based around what the pastor believes you should do. And unlike in therapy, there is not like a therapist's in goal is to get you to where you want to be. A pastor's end goal is to get you to conform to what they would prefer for you to do. <laughs> so I think for Luke, right, like he goes to counseling, but who's he doing counseling with? It's like his buddies. It's like his work right. buddies. So like, that's not an effective form of personal evaluation. That's just hanging out with your buddy, which is great, but not helpful. <laughs> no, no. Um, and then of course the, the girls don't have someone to talk to in that same, same space. Well, who are they going to talk to, right? Like they have to talk to each other because they, it's inappropriate for them to talk to anyone else. And that is kind of the, I keep saying that they're like micro celebrities, but they really are right. Where like, if they go and talk shit about their dad or even say like, this is a hard process for me, that rumor is going to it's a prairie fire with the tailwind, right? It's gone. And like, you can't stop it. And that is the kind of thing that they are constantly aware of is like, how do you decide what to say and to who and in what method to make sure that it doesn't come back to burn you, which is, it's a bad way to live really. (laughs) Kelsey, this is so fun talking to you. Um, And this book is excellent. Thank you for having me. The girls. Um, Will you recommend some books, please? Oh my God, I would love to. I already recommended the secret or mentioned the secret life of church ladies, but I love that book and cannot get enough of it. Um, I also read recently a really interesting book that is not like mine, but it's called Shiner by Amy Jo Burns. Did you read this? Yes. It's great. It's about like a different kind of pastor in West Mm -hmm. Virginia who is able to like use snakes, which is very exciting and fun. Um, let's see. And then my like go-to recommendation for the beach is Paula Fox's Desperate Characters, yes. which is an old book, but who doesn't love a, a inciting event that is a cat bite? <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Very fun. Is that enough? Yeah. Kelsey, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.